This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena, no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo irarangi o tangata o Manawatu. Uh, if you can hear a little bit of an echo in my voice, that's because I'm not in the studios NPR. I'm working from home. And uh, so, welcome to my living room, dear listener. Uh, also, welcome to my living room, uh, MP for Rangitiki, Ian McKelvey. Good morning. Morning. Uh- and um, we're home. Pleased to be in your living room. <laughs> First time for everything. Um, exactly. I, well, I suppose you you may be experiencing a bit of cabin fever uh, yourself because uh, a wander around the Parliament grounds is not as easy as it once used to be. Well, yes. I mean, I, yesterday, was, of course, was a beautiful day, and um, and I think that um, the tone of the of the um, uh, Parliament grounds has changed a lot in the last week, uh, so. So it actually is quite easy to wander around Parliament grounds, although you can't walk along the front because the police are guarding it. But um, but no, it's an interesting environment we live in. Uh, yeah, and I mean, Parliament seems to be, well, it certainly was a couple of days ago, uh, it seemed to be united uh, across the, the floor that uh, no one was going to engage with um, what everyone's calling the protesters, but I call the illegal occupiers. Um that obviously, that's not the state now. But have you have you had a chance to at least witness the nature of the protest with your own eyes, or are you looking at it through the, oh, the media so, lens as well? No, no. I've certainly um, you don't have much choice but to witness it through uh, your own eyes when you've um, uh, like I've had a lot of these people that have um, been involved in this protest at one time or another through my office, um, and. Um, you know, a lot of the people who have been involved in that protest are uh, just people like you and I. And um, and so I've talked to an awful lot of them. Um, I've talked to a lot of them on the streets in Wellington, interesting, because you can't walk down Lambton Quay without finding someone you know or knew that, <laughs> that's uh, involved in it. And certainly um, the environment of the, of the protest changed a lot, though. And I, and I think when you refer to it as an illegal uh, uh, um, occupation or whatever you referred to it as, I think you're absolutely right, because aside from Parliament grounds, which I think is, the people's place. Uh, you certainly can't camp on the streets as they are. And there's many businesses affected by it, and there's many, many residential people affected by it. Because, of course, a lot of people live in Central Wellington. Yeah, and um, the police don't seem to be making much headway in this. And so, uh, superhero himself, David Seymour, has stepped forward to uh, try and negotiate uh, with some intermediaries. Uh, as I mentioned before, sort of. Uh, breaking ranks with the rest of Parliament, who who agreed not to do such a thing, uh, is is his action? Are his actions justified? Oh, look! I, I, he had a different reason for doing it. He met with the um, at, a, at a business owner's request. Met with the business owner, and and I'm not sure how you get a representative of the of the uh, of the protest because it's a very diverse group of people out here. Um, 
So, so yeah, I think that he's done what he's done. He's got significant criticism from the Prime Minister. But I don't think there was ever an agreement between the parties not to meet with him. I think it was just an accepted thing that if they, if they can't behave in a legal manner, then uh, Parliament shouldn't be supporting it. Well, and, and this is the thing, isn't it? They are not acting in a legal manner, and we all recognise that on occasion protests bend or indeed break the rules, but not in a sustained way. This is um, very different. Whether you agree with the overriding sort of anti-mandate message or the the fringe messages that are dotted and peppered throughout, um, it's an illegal activity. And one would expect the police to deal with that. But they don't appear to be. I mean, we're into double figures in terms of days of this occupation. Um, we've heard repeated claims that the toys are ready to go and going to take all the cars and vehicles away, but n- nothing appears to be happening. It looked like on the on that first Thursday, the the, the police were uh, going to do something concrete, but then they, they they've basically stood down and not done anything since. It's, it's very unusual, isn't it? And I think it's interesting because we've seen one of the two occupations, I suppose you'd call them, like this before. And ATS Square in Auckland a few years ago was a classic example of that. Interesting, the police commissioner was the commissioner in charge of that uh, as well. Uh, but um, I think that I think the police, to be fair to them, are, are probably doing their best. But I think the, <laughs> the activities of the of the speaker and one or two other things have certainly antagonised the crowd, and and I think um, have, have caused some of the challenge that the police now face. Ah, well, I mean, the, the, the police, uh, one could read into the convening of Odesk to be throwing their hands up and saying, well, we can't do this on our own. We've got this new uh, security co- coordination for, um, was it, Officials Committee for Domestic and External Security Coordination. I mean, this is sounding like the concern is that this is a national security risk. That seems a bit excessive. Well, I, I was a bit intrigued to read that myself, and I, I think actually... The, the, as I said earlier, the, the nature of the protest changed a lot as I've been watching it and, in fact, walking through it. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I think there was some risk uh, of significant violence and other things last week. That seems to have dissipated. And, and from what I can see of the protest now, it's, it's growing now, unfortunately. Uh, and it's relatively passive. But, of course, we'll see what happens, won't we? Well, we will. And, I mean, yes, there is a majority, I think, of peaceful protesters who have, um, I I might think, jumped on the bandwagon. But there is still a large body of people claiming things like sovereign citizenship, uh, anti-vaccination messaging is strong, wanting to hang politicians. They are still there. Uh, making these threats, I mean, do you do you feel you're protected enough? I mean, we, what what other resources do we have to finish this? Well, I think that we're protected enough. I'm not worried about us. I think the people that are that you've got to be concerned for are the business owners and the and the people who live in that in the area. And and you're quite right. You don't really know the contents of the crowd, and that that's obviously why the security um, services have got involved in it because you could quite easily have. Um, uh, dissidents that you don't understand are there and involved there. And so it's quite a significant challenge, but I do think the Parliament's well protected. Uh, did you agree with um, the Speaker of the House choosing to blast COVID-19 messages and uh, uh, certain styles of music and, of course, importantly, turning on the, the lawn sprinklers? 
well, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I find it extraordinary. And, and we've, of course, got a, motor, a notice of motion and, uh, and before the House at the moment, which I guess the Prime Minister won't agree to, of course, but we've got a notice of motion before the House <laughs> declaring no, no confidence in the Speaker. Uh, and and that's for the, the only way that will ever change is if the Prime Minister loses, uh, loses confidence in the Speaker herself. And so you don't think that will happen? Because I mean, it, I, from a from a uh, observation point, from a distance, I found that quite amusing. But uh, obviously, you're closer <laughs> to the action. You can see the repercussions clearer. And evidently, people thought this was uh, uh, well eyebrow raising, to say the least. Poor, uh, poor judgment, perhaps. It was inflammatory, in my view. Fair enough. Um, just to be to be clear on the the, the mandates themselves, and and people have been uh, quite clear. Uh, the, the the more sensible and eloquent uh, protesters have been saying we are not anti-vaccine, we are anti-mandate. Is that a message that you could bring yourself to endorse? Oh, I think to some extent you could. And I think we've got to go back to the beginning of this thing and understand why mandates were brought in in the first place. We had. We had um, lots of old people, um, in, in many cases, dying, actually, from COVID. And so the mandate was brought in to effectively protect and uh, assist health workers, both protect and assist them to, to do their job better, and also our border workers who were also at significant risk of catching the initial stages of COVID, and probably still are, but, but that was before the vaccine. And so the problem, I think, that the crowd's got, and the one that I have myself with this stuff, is that that nothing's changed, and so the mandates have got stronger. Um, I think the other thing about the mandates that we've got to accept is that many um, of our exporters have um, instituted mandates in their businesses to protect our export business. And so, you know, meatworks, um, um, export, horticulture exporters, um, all those sort of people have got mandates as well, and they're to protect their uh, their export um, businesses. And so, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of discussion needs to be had around mandate, and and I don't like it, but but at the time they were brought in initially, it was necessary. Because uh, you know your your leader Christopher Luxon is now saying we need to start discussing a plan to get rid of them. He acknowledges, I think, quite wisely that we can't give a date right now, but that we need to have a plan. Is the plan not the current protection framework with the phased the phased rollout of the infection as opposed to the phased rollout of the vaccine? Well, I agree with you about the phased rollout of the infection. They're trying to phase it, but it looks to be getting away a little on them. Uh, and, and you'd have to wonder how such a large group of people um, could be congregating uh, many of them unvaccinated in a place like Parliament with no masks, no no distancing, no nothing, and not getting uh, COVID. Well, uh, one would argue they are going to very soon. Well, there was an article in the paper this morning about that, but I just don't... Uh, who knows, you know? It would be a mystery if they don't. <laughs> Indeed. Um we were speaking to Jimmy Ellingham from RNZ on Wednesday, finding out what he has been reporting on. And he's been uh, delving into uh, mental health uh, provision and capacity, particularly in Manawatu, but on, on a national level as well. And some of the figures that he was uh, talking about, I think, really back up the, the argument that I've been making time and time again, which is that the health system, under normal working conditions, 
is in excess of its capacity to cope. And if we were to, for example, end vaccine mandates tomorrow, um, the health system would crumble. And it's in danger of doing so anyway. Uh, Is that not reason to get behind these mandates and support what the government is doing right now instead of calling for them to possibly end before their efficacy has run out? I want to talk about the mental health thing a bit separately, but I, th- I think you're right. And I think in the meantime, the government's using that as, as its reason for um, enforcing the mandates. And, and the problem that we have in opposition is we don't know what information the government is using to enforce these things. So until, and, and we don't get access to that information, and we can ask all we like, but, but it, it's not released by the Ministry of Health. So we don't have access to that. So that's the first um, so I can't really strongly comment on what we would do as an alternative because we don't know enough about it. I just want to talk about the mental health though for a minute. And I think the mental health issue in the in health in New Zealand has been challenged for a long time. And and um with the mental two particularly we have an issue with it. But then we were the home of Lake Alice and Kimberley and, and uh, some of those people are still living in our area. So so we do have some challenges that other areas don't have. But I do think that that mid central, the mid central area is more challenged with mental health issues than than other places. And Matt Ducey, of course, our mental health spokesperson, asking questions in the house yesterday about this, and has been very strong on the minister not getting on with the mental health um, challenges that we face in New Zealand. And he's had four years to do it, done absolutely nothing. And so, and, I think, and and COVID, of course, has, has added to this uh, challenge as well. It well, it, I mean, it has, and and the issue, uh, I assume, uh, someone from the government benches would uh, put back at you, and I know um, Tangi Utakeri's predecessor said this quite often: the the previous national government's investment in the health service was nowhere near sufficient, and and it's kind of hard to argue with that when we see, you know, the the mould and the damp in Middlemore Hospital, the the embarrassingly small wait times in Palmerston North Hospital's emergency department, the mental health ward running at 103% of its capacity when it should be at maximum 80%. There's a lot going wrong here, plus the COVID pandemic. Is, is it not understandable that maybe traction has not been made on on one or more issues because of just the sheer workload there and the lack of investment? That's like blaming Helen Clark. Um, they've had four years to fix this issue, and and it's unacceptable that in four years they're still blaming a national government of six or seven years ago. It's extraordinary. Well, I'm not saying they are. I'm saying that would be the counter to the argument that they've oh, had right. four well, years. They, well, they are. They yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes, but I mean, you, there's a, if there's only so much time and only so much money, and in four, in ten years, the investment wasn't there under the the national government, and then four additional years of trying to bring that back, uh, you're starting from, you know, you're starting the 100 meter dash from a quarter mile away, aren't you? Oh, I don't think so. In the case of mental health, no, I, th- I think that you've got some fair criticism of some of the hospital infrastructure in New Zealand, but that's been going on for generations, not just for one government. Um, I don't think it takes four years to fix mental health issues, or not to fix them, but to to, to put in place a suitable um, way of managing our mental health challenges would not take four years. 
Uh, we are here with Ian McKelvey, MP for Rangitiki, on the catch-up, uh, live from my living room. Uh, if you'd like to listen to this or previous, uh, possibly slightly higher quality interviews from the studio, uh, then you can head to the website mpr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Uh, of course, the quality of the conversation wouldn't be anywhere near as good as it is this morning. Um, just uh, staying on the health system, Ian, uh, obviously we are seeing some development in Palmerston North as there. Uh, turning uh, soil on a uh, new emergency department and they're working on a health uh, new mental health ward as well. Are these is this infrastructure going to be enough uh, and for how long? Because this area is growing, fielding's growing at an ex- exponential rate and uh, if we can figure out a solution to the housing crisis, maybe Palmerston North will as well. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. The Palmerston North Hospital, interestingly, is one of the worst, um, not worst, but it's one of the hospitals that the government and the ministry considers most in need of replacement. So, so you've got Otago being replaced now. Now, Palmerston North basically is next on the list. And so Palmerston North Hospital, a lot of its infrastructure is old, and it certainly needs a bit of support. Uh, the mental health uh, infrastructure is desperate in, in uh, Palmerston North and does need replacing as well. But I think the real issue around mental health is not the infrastructure, but the, the services that are available to people and the way those people are serviced as a result of the challenges they face. It's desperately hard to get uh, into mental health treatment, and when you get into it, it's desperately hard to get out of it. So so there's some real challenges around our mental health um, uh, issues, not only in the Manawatu, but throughout New Zealand, but um, certainly we're challenged in our area. So are we, are we as uh, taxpayers spending money on a hospital that is likely going to be replaced quite soon? No, I think I don't think so. I think that, I think there's parts of that hospital that are very modern uh, and there's a lot of it that aren't. So I guess that, that rather than a complete demolition job like is happening in Dunedin, I think you, you would replace bits of it at a time because it, it's a much better well, from my observation, I don't know. I'm no expert on buildings, obviously, but I walk through there a lot. And, and I think it's in a better state for some parts but than, than others. And so obviously there's bits that need replacing it. And certainly the operating tiers and things like that are old. So there's interesting issues there. Mm. Um, let's move on. Uh, the minimum wage is increasing as of the 1st of April to $21.20 an hour. Are we happy with that? Well, look, I think there's two issues about the minimum wage. One is we've got a, a massive uh, jump in inflation and, and we've got inflation running at levels that probably uh, two generations below me have never heard of or seen and never imagined. And so we've got some significant challenge with the cost of living. Uh, and so there's, so from that perspective, there's reason to jump the minimum wage. I think the other thing we've got though going on at the moment is massive pressure on, on business, small business particularly, uh, and retail. And so this was going to really hurt those people. Now, you can argue that, that um, those people receiving the minimum wage deserve a, a rise, and I've got no argument with that. But I also understand that these other the businesses that are paying these people are under significant pressure at the moment, and it's inevitably, inevitable that we will lead to, uh, to job losses and things like that. But that's just the way it works. Um, I think more obvious that there'll be some job losses as a result of this minimum wage rise than any other, but of course there's plenty of jobs about, so that won't be quite the challenge for those people, hopefully. Is is that the case, though? Because I hear that argument every time, that, that this is going to result in job losses, and invariably the evidence suggests either the contrary or nowhere near the impact that people were expecting. 
Yes, I, I agree with you on that. And I think that I think sometimes uh, it's used as an excuse. But I think the issue we've got right now is that we've got many, many small businesses hugely stressed. And so this is going to be much, this is just going to add a whole lot more stress to them. I've never seen small business in New Zealand stressed like this, even in 2008, where we were under significant pressure as an economy. Um, this time, it's really small business that's hurting, uh, whether it's entertainment, hospitality, whatever it is, it's, it's hurting. And I think that's the difference between now and other times we've looked at this uh, minimum wage type thing. So do, would you support calls to the Minister of Finance to look at opening up some sort of SME scheme? So not something that main freight and the warehouse can take advantage of, but something that the small and medium-sized enterprises could take advantage of to get them through what's conceivably going to be the next two months? Well, yes, I, th- I think there's a lot of challenges there. And, and We've come up with one or two schemes. Uh, Andrew Bailey, who was our spokesperson for a long time in this area, came up with one or two schemes exactly along those lines. But I think the real challenge is that, that customers are not going in the door. And the reason they're not going in the door is partly because of fear. And so it's very difficult to get people to attend things at the moment. And, and I think that's the challenge that our small business has largely got. People have got money, but they just aren't spending it. And they're not going out. And they're not... Uh, attending events, they're not even uh, um, shopping in some of these places. So that, that's the real challenge we've got for that small business. Well, and, and there is a, a sort of conflicting message going on there, isn't there? Because we're, we're continually told to support local, which ties in likely with... Uh, that ties in well with the the local businesses and the small and medium businesses who are often not, you know, franchises and spread all across the the country. Um, so the shop local message is good, but at the same time, you know, keep your distance, protect yourselves, track and trace, go for tests. What message is the most important now? I think that's the very question that the protesters are asking, interestingly. We've got to a point where where we've managed the the um, effects of the pandemic, and and I frankly think we're probably through that now, and so that's the big debate that needs to be held, and it needs to be held quickly because a lot of things will change people's perceptions of what's going on, and if, if people realise, if in fact I'm right, and people don't get as sick from um, this round of the epidemic as they did earlier then I think we'll see people start to free up. But government's certainly got to take a lead in that and give some signals. Uh, with respect, I would argue that's not what the, the, the protesters are, are arguing about. They may be frustrated with the current play, but their focus is very much on mandated vaccines. Um, which Is that a fair term? Because no one is forcing anyone to get one. It's just if you don't have one, there are some things you can't do because it's not safe for you. Uh, people keep saying Omicron, well, Omicron's a, a less... Uh, dangerous variant. It's only less dangerous if you're vaccinated. That that's right. Well, that seems to be right. Uh, although, as I said earlier, if they don't get it in the crowd down here, <laughs> we've been led astray. The, the, I think the real issue, though, is that if you look at things we can do and can't do, it seems grossly unfair. Um, and that you can go to the supermarket and do whatever you like. Uh, and they talk about social distancing. That's nonsense um, because it doesn't happen in supermarkets. Um, but it but does when I go because I make sure cafe. no one goes anywhere near me. Yeah, yeah, but you're such a liar. <laughs> You've got statue. <laughs> 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 but, 
<laughs> with due respect, <laughs> people, <laughs> I dodge you too. <laughs> the um, I think that I think the issue is that there's some very odd things going on with this stuff, and, and I, th- you know, I just accept that that people are frustrated because of it. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, now the 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 minimum wage, as I said, going up to twenty one dollars and twenty cents. The living wage is another buck fifty on top of that, twenty two seventy five. Um, when do you see the living wage matching the minimum wage, or vice versa? Well, that's one of the government's stated uh, aims, I guess. So I think <laughs> if they last long enough, it'll happen quite quickly. And and you know, I think we've got a Based the fact that we've just got to get a more productive economy to get these things working. If we could make our economy more productive, it would solve the problem. And, and the, a classic example, I don't want to undermine our, our lovely people that run the, um, the roading industry, for example, but you look at the number of people driving machines on the road and the number of people holding signs, it outnumbers the machinery operators two to one. And so that's the problem we've got with our productive economy. We've got so many people who are in unproductive work. But, I mean, well, yeah, is it unproductive, making sure that someone doesn't drive over the fresh bitumen or drive into the, the cones or drive on the wrong side of the road during wrong, during roadworks? Well, we never used to. No, but there was a lot less traffic on the roads, and um, <laughs> I'm starting to sound uh, a bit more senior myself now, but people might have had a little bit more more common sense. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Maybe, but I do think we've got to, we've just got to drive to get our, our economy more productive. And one of the problems with our our economy has been our um, agricultural base and the exporting of whole products. That's changing quickly now, but nonetheless, we do have a lot of people still working in what I'd term, and it's not their fault. I mean, they're just as valuable as any other worker, but but, but unfortunately, we're unproductive. Um, we've managed to speak to Mayor Helen Warboys and Mayor Grant Smith uh, on the catch-up over the past uh, few days. Uh, obviously, the, the, speaking predominantly about three waters there, um, Mayor Helen is quite pleased with the uh, performance of the the uh, organisation Communities for Local Democracy. They've got uh, well over 25 councils on board now that oppose the government's plan for uh, three waters reform. Interestingly, speaking to Mayor Grant Smith, it appears that they share a lot of the concerns that communities for local democracy have, but they cannot get away from the fact that they simply haven't got the money to fix what the, the current uh, water discharge in Palmerston North. So they've signed on for the money. Um, do you think that is going to be the overwhelming reason that Three Waters Reform progresses, or do you think this is going to get turned around? I, I've got a feeling it will get turned around. I think the reason will get turned around is because rate payers will eventually work out that no one else is going to pay the bill for them despite three waters. And so whilst Palmer North doesn't think it's got the money, Palmer Small people will still pay the bill. So I think that's the challenge that the government's got with us, and I think they're starting to realise that now, that this is a massive um, undertaking they've <laughs> put in front of them. And and I think there's much better ways of enabling Palmer North to, to um establish its water supply and its, and its wastewater plants in better, better order than they are. Ironically, you see the thing as Manawatu District seem to have done theirs, Rangatiki District have a similar problem to Palmer's North. And so some district councils have done well, some haven't done well. You could argue that it's not doing well or badly. It's just there's a, at what stage they're at with it. Mm. 
Uh, we are out of time on the catch-up this morning, but MP for Rangitiki, Ian McKelvey, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Fraser. And remember, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch-Up series, you can head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Uh, we will be back on Monday if I look at my diary with uh, someone from CEDA, the Central Economic Development Agency. Uh, on Tuesday, we're hopefully catching up with Councillor Sam Ferguson from Horizons. Uh, on Wednesday, Matthew Dallas from the Manawatu Standard will join us. Helen Warboys on Thursday from Manawatu District Council and hopefully Tangi Utakere on the 25th of February, MP for Palmerston North. Have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye for now. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.